0: about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philokalia Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philokalia Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you, and enjoy the podcast. to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back everybody to our study of the Everettinos and we're picking up this evening on page 384 with paragraph number six about midway down the page and if you remember we've been discussing the father's writings on humility and its importance for the spiritual life and to say its importance for the spiritual life I think is uh an understatement. They certainly see it as the preeminent virtue, and within within which all the other virtues are, are found. And so to have this above all is to be configured to Christ, and uh, it's quite clearly the most important virtue that we are to strive for, and uh, impregnable, as we've been talking about to the demons. And as we move into the next hypothesis, uh, the authors will be speaking about the distinctive marks of a person who has... This gift of humility what it looks like concretely and again this is what i think makes the abracatinus so fruitful that we are given these concrete examples for ourselves to reflect upon so again number six in a certain city there lived a bishop who by the activity of satan fell into fornication a few days later there was a liturgy in the church and without anyone knowing the bishop's sin He made a confession in front of all the people, saying, I have fallen into fornication. As soon as he had uttered these words, he took off his amophorin and placed it on the holy table. I can no longer be a bishop, he said. In the wake of this scene of sincere confession, the people were all seized with emotion and cried out in lamentation. This sin be upon us, only remain in the episcopate. If you want me to remain with you, answered the bishop, do what I tell you. He immediately ordered all the doors of the church to be shut, fell on his face at the side door and said to the people, anyone who does not tread on me when he leaves this church is not on the side of God. All the people did as the bishop told him, that is to say, they trod on him as they departed. As the last person left, A voice from heaven was heard from heaven saying i've forgiven the bishop his sin because of his great humility uh maybe a difficult thing for us to imagine a public confession of one's sins uh but uh, more common certainly within life of the early church and uh certainly requiring a greater uh of the virtue of humility i think to to be able to love the truth uh, to such an extent that one is willing then uh to embrace it in the sight of others and uh and especially one in such position of guiding the flock uh it's a, a powerful example um not only for him certainly to relieve his conscience, but I think to reveal the path forward, that we are to be conformed to Christ specifically with uh, in regards to his humility. And so to hide from the truth uh, rather than to embrace it fully and to be seen in the light of the truth is contrary to the gospel. And for us, you know, I think in terms of our confession of our sins, it's what Uh, makes it so important for us that it draws us closer to Christ, he who is truth. Mm -hmm. And so to stand in the light of the truth, to acknowledge humbly before him the ways that we have fallen short of the gospel and of love uh, is uh, uh, something that uh, is enlivening. Uh, There's a beautiful part of the liturgy in the Eastern Rite and the Byzantine Rite uh, before the, the priest makes the pr- procession over to the side altar uh, to uh, carry the, the gifts that are going to be consecrated, uh, he bows to his deacon and asks for forgiveness, and then to the congregation as a whole, uh, asking for forgiveness as well. And so there's some aspect of it, uh, of this uh, uh, as we see in the story, some aspect of it maintained within the liturgy itself. And uh, as we begin Lent every year, too, there's Forgiveness Sunday, where uh, everyone turns to the person next to them and asks for forgiveness, so that in a concrete way that we are acting out the the, the gospel, uh, not just again in our mind in an emotional way, but trying to make it as concrete for ourselves. As possible that we're not only to do this with the person sitting next next to us in the pew, but those uh, we encounter on a day to day basis, It's often those that we are closest to that perhaps we we don't offer forgiveness. And in one of the little stories coming up here, uh, the, the father's lament that they've moved away from this practice of asking for forgiveness as a greeting. When they meet each other that they had incorporated this into the the role of their community Uh, again in order that uh, that which is central to again the gospel you know seeking forgiveness from god and from from others and humble life would not be pushed out to the margins or again uh, where those wounds wouldn't wouldn't be left in the darkness and so go unhealed and so on a daily basis too, to embrace it. An elder said, I prefer a defeat accompanied by humility to victory accompanied by pride. Uh, all, always great little sayings from the fathers. And again, uh, the, we don't want to let these pass by quickly. And precisely because I think often we can make the spiritual life into a kind of external perfection, uh, uh, where things can be, we can fall into a kind of moralism or legalism, rather than having it uh, be rooted again in our focus upon Christ and the mercy and the love that we receive at his hand and that we are to imitate in our engagement of others, that we are never to look at others in a scornful way, even when there is a concrete sin that might be acknowledged in the mind, that we are to focus upon the temptation that the person may have experienced, but not to be condemning. And again, this is a very difficult thing, I think, in our generation. We've grown used to, A kind of harshness in the way that we not only look at others, but the way that we speak to others. And again, it can be very difficult uh, where there is a familiarity with with others, especially with those whom we live, uh, that we often will take liberties there and the way that we speak to people. Number eight, an elder said humility has often saved many, even without effort. This is demonstrated by the publican and the prodigal son, who said only a few words and were saved. This will be a continuing theme. As I mentioned, the next hypothesis is the longest in the entire volume, and for good reason, and we will encounter one story after another very much like this saying or demonstrating this saying, that, again, it's not proving ourselves to God or to ourselves or to others. It's acknowledging the the love and the mercy of God and allowing that to be the source of our response, that we act out of gratitude in our spiritual life. This is why we pursue virtue, and this is why we pursue the ascetic life. Uh, Again, not to build up an image, a self-image. Uh, even if it is a religious one. And this is very difficult for us because, again, as we talked about last week, and especially in Climacus, the ego uh, snaps back into place, You know, this kind of muscle memory almost, where self-esteem gets the best of us. And we hold on again to this image of raising ourselves up in and through this struggle rather than uh, maintaining our focus upon the Lord. And again, this is, I think, why the Jesus prayer is such a powerful prayer, because we are acknowledging our identity before God, who he is to us, and our need for his grace and mercy. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And with this, there's a gentle movement, a remembrance of God, that keeps us focused upon him throughout the course of the day at at every single single moment, that we are clinging to him, that he becomes the beginning and the end of all that we do so that we are avoiding in and through this simple prayer, like the publican and like the prodigal son, uh, simply beating our breasts and acknowledging where grace and mercy comes from. Number nine, an elder said that the fathers before us entered the kingdom of heaven by their strictness. But let us, if we can do so by kindness, enter through humility. I found this to be an interesting little saying because this uh, elder is seeing a shifting that takes place. That There's this movement out into the desert and that requires a kind of strictness. That There was no role, as we've talked about in previous groups. There was no one to show them how to live this life or what disciplines to take up. You know, they are driven into the desert out of a desire for God and to know him in a deeper fashion. And the rigors of, of living that life are what is so often manifest, I think, in the stories of the early fathers, and this elder is saying that uh, those who went before, they they manifested the strictness of life, of setting aside everything, of turning away from the world in order to turn radically toward God. But again, it's not the strictness in an, that is an end in itself, that this the strictness is rooted in this desire to, to know the Lord and to give oneself to him. And so, it is to lead to humility, uh, not, uh, again, to this sense of one being uh, simply an ascetic or disciplined. It wouldn't make any sense to them, uh, but uh, I think even many of the Desert Fathers fell into that trap. And we hear Christ warn, again, about it in the Gospels. Do not fast in order that others might see you fast. Uh, Or do not give alms that others might see you give alms. That it is to be hidden. And that what is to be, again, the driving force is love and, and humility. And finally, number 10 of this hypothesis. Abba Isaiah said, we need humility more than any other virtue. Let us always be ready. Whatever word we might say or hear or whatever we might do to say, forgive me. For through humility, all of the evil works of the devil devil are foiled." So here in this final statement, we see the exalted position that they they give humility, uh, that it is needed more than any other virtue. And that when it is obtained, uh, when one possesses it, the, the devil is driven away. Again, it's the one thing Climacus and others tell us that the devil cannot mimic and really has no knowledge of. And so to take hold of this virtue above all the others uh, and pursuing this uh, above every ascetic practice is what's important. You know, the devil never eats. The devil never sleeps. And so to rest upon vigils or to rest upon fasting, in a sense, is foolhardy if we are to make those things ends in themselves. Whereas humility, we are embracing uh, the path that has been revealed to us in Christ. We are conforming ourselves to him. Anthony writes, emphasis on kindness sounds something like St. Gabriel of Georgia said yes and you know I came across a little quote from father faber today i don't know if you're all familiar with him but he was an oratorian who founded the london oratory at the same time as newman and talks about this that kindness again is uh one of the most important of the of the virtues uh that uh we can't have the other virtues with without it and that we might have some simulation uh, if you will of those virtues but lacking kindness lacking this humility there is no truth within them whereas if we have kindness uh, or this I think this spirit of humility uh, it, it brings a kind of genuineness uh, to the virtues that we are practicing the You know, there's always this danger, again, of the self uh, tainting even the virtues themselves, uh, if they go unchecked by the virtue of humility. Any final thoughts on this hypothesis before we move on to the next? Okay. So, hypothesis 45. page 386 so the distinctive marks of the humble man and a lot of this again might uh, strike us as a little bit odd especially the emphasis uh, upon uh, disparaging the self you know self-critique again you know I think in an age that often focuses on self-esteem it's a hard thing for us to imagine and I think we can We've often probably seen it misused in, in the sense of directing it towards others, uh, this kind of disparaging attitude, uh, and so rooted in you know a kind of pride or it can be rooted in a kind of self-hatred too. And so as we read this, we want to be aware of it. But nonetheless, this kind of uh, truthful living again, living in the full life of the truth, brings us to a deep acknowledgement of our woundedness and our need for healing, and again, as the fathers saw, the the church was a hospital, and that uh, this is to bring healing and ultimately to bring us back into that relationship with God, and so to to produce the fruit of joy, and so as we listen to this, and and we even as we hear them speak about you know self uh, self critique. We don't want to go down that path where it is this kind of self-hatred. Again, it's truthful living, I think is the better way to, to, to portray it. From the Geronticon, Abba Anthony said, I saw all the snares of the devil spread out over all the earth. And I groaned and said, what is it that bypasses these without being trapped? And I heard a voice saying to me humility this is one of my favorite sayings of saint anthony that he gazes out upon the the world and sees the presence of evil and uh the world is as it were thick with it and so he groans within it you know who can be saved as it were you know how what is the response to be in the face of this and the the word that he hears in the silence of the desert is humility, and I think this is a word that we need to hear in our own day as well. I think the again the media, the news, uh, in particular, uh, can breed you know this kind of hopelessness within the heart anxiety, agitation, when we see everything that is going on, or at least it's how it's, how it's presented to us. You know, the acts of aggression, hatred, war, uh, everything that uh, seems to be uh, making the world around us crumble. And it would be easy for us, again, to lose our hope in the promises of, of Christ and so when Anthony sees this, you know, he has the same visceral experience that I think that we often do. You know, there's something in us that shrinks back and he groans, you know, what could possibly overcome this? And for us, it's it's always the cross of Christ. To keep our, our focus fixed upon Christ crucified uh, is t- to know that you know the evil has been conquered death itself has been conquered and our life i think can become wrapped up in in these things when our attention shifts away from god in the smallest way and from the spiritual life uh i've been reading a book again in preparation for a retreat i'm doing in october i've mentioned it before and again i'd highly suggest uh, getting it. it's Pope Shenouda, it's Pope Shenouda III, his book, uh, "The Life of, of Repentance and Purity of Heart," and he spends the last section of the book speaking a lot about purity of heart, but also why there is a kind of backsliding that often takes place. That there's a difference. He he makes a distinction he makes between sanctity and purity of heart. That sanctity can be our ceasing to commit serious sins, but purity of heart really comes from uh, being so focused upon God that we desire to love him in in every moment, in every encounter that we have with another, and everything that we were doing throughout the course of the day and that means not allowing our, our minds to wander, not allowing ourselves to be become distracted towards uh, the things that are passing. So even as we engage in our work, or our relationship with others, or the, in the things in the world around us, that uh, we certainly thank God for the good things that he's given to us. But in the midst of that, being careful not to lose sight of him, to turn away from him. And I thought the distinction was a very powerful one, and certainly he articulates it far better than I can, that we rarely go this far in our thinking about the spiritual life, that uh, it often ends for us at the idea of sanctity, you know, of not committing any specific sins or grave sins, but purity of heart, reflects a loss of the desire for anything but God and to please and to love God and uh, that uh, part of that can be hard for us again to imagine that the grace of God can be so transformative and so purify the heart That it frees us from all the attachment, not only to specific sins that we would commit, but anything that would lead us towards that sin or lead us away from God to lose sight of God. That we are meant to live in this constant communion with him, even in in and through all the things that he has given to us. And part of what has been lost through the fall is this kind uh, of... of, uh, constant communion where again we become either overly attached to the things of this world or uh, become attached to them in a disordered way or simply forget god and in the end he he describes this as the reason for our, our backsliding Uh, In the things that we find ourselves repenting over and over again. And even saying to ourselves, I will not do this again. And then we fall into the same thing again. And part of the reason for that is this lack of of purity of heart. And he does such a beautiful job in describing both things. As repentance as being a hatred for sin. So it's not simply avoiding committing sin, it's developing a hatred for it, but the purity of heart takes us one step further, which is this longing for God, a desire for him that we seek to live in with a constancy and that we hold to be precious and uh, we get to a point that we would do never do anything to let go of it. And uh, again, you know, seeking that, in and of itself fosters humility we acknowledge that ultimately it is only by god's grace that this can can come about we've already talked you know so many times about the the tens of thousands of thoughts that we can have or that you know in a given day and how hard that is but the idea of not allowing the the mind and the heart to become distracted uh, takes it to another level the same elder said to Abba Poyman, a man's work is this, to assume responsibility for his sin before God and to expect temptation until his last breath. That might sound a little stark and perhaps a little bleak <laughs> in terms of the vision of life, but uh, it's there's a clarity to it, you know, to assume responsibility, you know, not to project our own weaknesses and failures and sin onto others to keep the focus upon oneself and then to expect temptation until we are in the grave. And Saint, you know, all the saints say this Isaac the Syrian said, you know, again, there's no Sabbath for us in this world, uh, in regards to the spiritual life, in, tor- in terms of the spiritual battle, that we don't take a break. Uh, a day off from our relationship with god and uh and so basically Poyman is saying the same thing expect temptation and spiritual warfare until our death and you know sunday or the the sabbath for us is not simply it is meant to be a, a day of rest but it's meant to be where we are resting in him where we are regaining if you will the clarity of that focus upon him, attachment to him, and desire for him. And it's not meant to, you know, simply be a freedom from our da- daily labors. Uh, because you, so often we do become oblivious, you know, on the Sabbath uh, to, to God. We might go, go to church, but how is it that we spend the rest of that time I forget who I was talking to this about, you know, that, you know, I can still remember, were they called blue laws? Uh, Where, you know, stores weren't open to be open on Sundays? Is that the correct? Is that what they were described, that that there was a sort of quietness uh, in, like, neighborhoods on those days, too? And there wasn't this buzz going on because the stores weren't open. Uh, maybe like the the drugstore or something like that was open, but everything else was closed, and so nobody was compelled. No employees were compelled to work on Sunday either, and so it did sort of foster this focus on the home life, but also on uh, on stillness. Not of no, of course that's not the only thing that's needed, but I, I think it was an external uh, aid when the culture you know, tried to protect that for people on some level. Number three, the demons once rose up against Abba Arsenios and harassed him in his cell. When those who served him came and stood outside his cell, they heard him crying to God and saying, Oh my God, do not abandon me, for I've never done anything good in thy sight but grant me according to the measure of thy goodness to make a beginning. Uh, again, these are often things that we we hear so many of the saints say. Uh, 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 Anthony says something similar, you know, to every every day to say, you know, I, I shall begin again. And, uh, and, or that I've never done anything good. Philip Neary saying, know and asking his disciples when shall we begin to do good uh that it's not i think it's easy for us to dismiss it uh, again as a pious thought rather than something that's rooted in this spirit of humility that uh one looking at one's life uh can begin to see how, how many ways we we do become distracted or turn away from God, uh, where we lose ourselves in ourselves, in our own thoughts, and where we become absent to God and he to us. And um, and so I think as we, we read these, we want to avoid that, you know, to, to looking at this, uh, these sayings, uh, as we want to, as mere pious sentiment, and see them as a real reflection of the virtue that the the saints so prized. A brother visited Abba Amonas and said to him, Abba, give me a word. He stayed with the elder for seven days, but heard nothing from him. Then when he was leaving, Abba Amonas said to him, as he escorted him out, up to this day, my sins have become a wall of darkness between me and god uh, you know we even hear things like this from Teresa lesu you know that there was a point where she experienced something similar that you know god there being a, a great wall between herself and god you know as she was going through her illness her final illness and but for so many of the saints you know, having this sense, again, of the weightiness of of their sin and the gravity of it, uh, that they are as many as the stars of the heavens. And there is something in God allowing one to see this that, that is humbling. I think last time we talked about that we don't make ourselves humble. We are humbled by, again, the truth. And coming to see the truth, the truth that is revealed to us, and um, and so the incarnation in and of itself, uh, and certainly the crucifixion—you know—to gaze upon it, we we see the nature of God's love, His compassion, His mercy. That yet you know uh, we were while we were still enemies of God, Paul tells us that God humbles Himself before us and takes upon Himself the burden of our sin. And so as one enters more deeply into the truth of this, as we receive greater light from God, we're also going to see the poverty of our own sin, how we have made light of that in our life. And so rather than have it something that shapes our identity and our thoughts and our desires, we again have pursued uh, lesser lights and things that are of lesser value. And so here's a man, Abba Arsinias was one of the great fathers. And, you know, after a week of, of waiting, you know, he's not able to offer a word uh, to this young man. And I think anyone, and I, there's on some level, those who are charged with preaching, I, I think, should experience this, you know, a kind of, of pain in the proclamation of the gospel that it's not like talking about you know building something or talking about mere history that what we are speaking about is something that should be a reflection of our own experience come from experiential knowledge and to get up in front of a community and to speak of Christ or of love or of humility and not to have pursued it, or, or to have pursued it weakly, uh, it is a, a, a deeply humbling thing, and can be very painful. And uh, this experience reminds me of this: that Seneas, as I mentioned, was, you know, one of the the holiest of of the Desert Fathers, and is often quoted among them, and yet unable to speak the word that is asked for here because of an awareness of the depth of his poverty and um i I don't know why i've been thinking about this a lot lately again it comes to mind so frequently and i've mentioned it before so i'm sorry again but it's from that 1960s francis movie uh, uh, and uh, but there's this one scene between himself and one of his friends who comes back from the Crusades and is wondering what Francis is doing, and uh, but he offers to help him, thinking that he's out of his mind. Uh, Bernardo, at least it was in the, the movie, and uh, Francis turns to him and he says, words, Bernardo. Words. There was a time when I believed in words, and for some reason that has always pierced my heart. And because there are times when uh, we speak to others about Christianity, or when even when we are speaking to ourselves about it, or thinking about living it. Uh, or when we are, are reading something like this and the feeling comes to us of the desire to embrace it, sometimes it feels like mere words that we are speaking about these things, but in a way we are lying to ourselves that there's no truth in them. And I think this is what Francis was saying to Bernardo, that there was a time when I believed in words as they were so often spoken, you know, whether within the church or by himself. And I think we come to a point where we we realize that the things that we are saying are, are if they have any truth at all within them, they are often a pale reflection of the reality. And that's true in general. Uh, I think, uh, even if we were had the capacity to articulate the faith and the truths of the faith beautifully, completely, and with great eloquence, the reality is, is they are not God as he is in himself. And the further one progresses in the life of faith, the more one sees that. And I think the more one is drawn to silence uh, or at least simplicity in, in one's speech, realizing that what the, the truth that we see or think we see is often, again, minimal. And uh, and so, you know, silence isn't simply something that the monks imposed upon themselves. It was a part of the ascetic discipline. But I think it's also a fruit of the ascetic life as well. You know, we've talked about it as being the gift that allows us to hear the word that God speaks to us and a word that is equal to himself. But I think it's also a gift where, that allows us to step away from the illusion of the truth uh, that we often cling to or the limited truth that we often cling to. And uh, and this is where we have to become comfortable or careful. You know, I think people are often uncomfortable with some of the things that Pope Francis has been saying, especially about ideology is, you know, we come up on the Synod and there being this discussion among uh, Christians about the life of faith. And uh, I can't, you know, I can't speak for him or know exactly how he's approaching things. But I, I think I, I do understand what he's saying there, that, that we so often will reduce the faith. We approach the faith in this reductive fashion to uh, it being an ideology or philosophy. And we do believe, again, in a revealed religion, that God has made himself known to us, a creedal faith, uh, but certainly, what God reveals to us, in and through the gift of His Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, uh, takes us beyond the the limitations in our ability to articulate it, and we can easily fall into a kind of a Phariseeism that where our 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 life, our spiritual life, is not rooted in this pursuit of God or this experience of him. Louise writes, would the Desert Fathers agree or disagree with the following? Hating sin makes us relate to sins and instill hatred inside of us and instills hatred inside of us. I prefer to practice detachment from sins as much as possible and feel sorrow at having turned my back to God. Well, I I think... I understand what you're saying here and why we might feel we want to be wary here. But uh, this is the one four-letter word that should be acceptable to us. Hate, when it comes to sin, uh, that, uh, that it is the path to true love. And uh, that the fathers talk about a specific faculty that has been given to us the incentive faculty that allows us, when it's formed by grace, to see and perceive sin. And so to respond with an immediacy as temptation comes to us to strike it down, that there is no sin in God. And so our love for God, our desire for him, and our love for others should make us hate the the sin, not of the others, but the sin within us that would uh, in in pride do anything other than love the individual and our attachment to sin and self reaches such a degree that uh, unless there is this hatred that that love that is the flip side of it doesn't emerge or if we allow Uh, some attachment even the smallest amount of it to remain is when how we are often drawn back into it I mentioned Pope Shenouda earlier and he talks about this in a chapter called the Canaanites in the land where Joshua is ordered to drive them all out and instead of uh, fulfilling the will of God he allows some to remain among the people they begin to intermarry and the people begin to practice their religion, you know, uh, the worship of, of of idols. And so uh, Shenouda picks up on this very much like the Desert Fathers uh, do and says, you know, when we are thinking about our sin and our spiritual, the spiritual battle, that we are to drive out that attachment and all of our attachment to sin. Because if we allow ourselves even to hold on to the smallest amount of it, that it eventually will overtake it, overtake us. And they've used that image from the the psalms too, about smashing the baby's heads against the stones, you know, of taking hold of sin, even in its initial roots, initial growth in us, and destroying it immediately before it takes hold, before it grows so large that uh, there's no battling with it. And so this is part of the reason that they use such strong language, both in regards to themselves, but to to sin and dealing with sin. That again, the the evil one is one who never rests and uh, will take advantage of any weakness on our part. This is where John Climacus, remember, says, nobody likes to go up against a plucky fighter. So you enter into the spiritual battle, with this kind of zeal, uh, not being hesitant, because uh, if you are, then you're going to be overcome. And he reiterates this later on in the book, in that section, in that step on unmanly fear, that when there is this kind of lack of strength in virtue and the pursuit of virtue, that uh, that again makes us uh, fearful and of the the one that we are engaged in a a battle against and with this kind of enemy we can allow no no room uh, for that fear to exist or any attachment Lee writes as I forgive someone who hurts me I see my sin disappear right and I think this is the fathers would agree with that you know it is our humbling of ourselves that is the powerful thing to ask forgiveness of, of the other that uh, uh, relieves not only us of the anger but also the other of the burden of whatever they might've done to us. You know, that we don't magnify uh, the sin there by adding our own anger to it. And this is again, what we see on the cross arms outstretched embracing it all that you know he he doesn't condemn he doesn't you know call down his angels to protect him he doesn't come in wrath but rather in mercy okay number five abba daniel recounted that there once lived in babylon a young woman a daughter of a governor of that place who had a demon inside her. The father of this girl knew a monk whom he loved and whom he persisted in asking to heal his daughter. The monk replied to him, no one can heal your daughter except some of the anchorites whom I know. But if we summon them out of modesty, they will not consent to do such a thing. It is preferable for us to do the following. When they come to market to sell their handiwork, Pretend that you want to buy their wares and invite one of them to your house in order to make payment. When they come, ask them to pray for your daughter. I believe that if they do this, she will be cured. So they went out to the marketplace and found the disciple of a certain elder who was sitting there to sell his handiwork. The governor's men took him and his baskets and led him to the governor's residence so that he might receive payment for his wares. However, as soon as he entered, the demonized girl ran up to him and slapped him. The monk then turned the other cheek, putting into practice the commandment of the Lord. Whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This behavior tormented the demon who said with ghastly cries, Oh, such violence. The commandment of Jesus expels me and immediately left the woman. At that moment, she became healthy and returned to her right mind. The incident was made known to the elders who glorified God and said nothing uh, so annihilates the pride of the devil as the humility that the commandments of Christ inspire. This is for me over these past weeks been one of the most inspiring stories uh, from the first volume along with a plethora of others, of course. But there's something immensely powerful about this, and I think I alluded to it in the past group, uh, that the embrace, the living out of the commandments, the manifestation of the virtue, uh, where we are living in such radical communion with Christ, that there's a oneness there uh, between us, that this is what cast out the demons. The, the monk says nothing, and instead embodies the virtue itself. And th- this immediately cast out the demon. And again, in our day and age, where we do focus so much on words and arguing, and uh, you know, to think about fighting the spiritual battle on another level, within our own hearts, uh, is something that often eludes us, that this is where the spiritual ba- battle is is won or lost. And the, the battle is most often within ourselves. And it's not going to be our words that uh, win it, but rather our communion with the Lord, of living the life that he's made possible for us. So when his virtue becomes our virtue, when his strength becomes our strength, And when the truth that he taught becomes embodied within us, when we become the living icon of it, when we become the incarnation of that truth, then this is what has power to speak to the heart of others, but even cast out demons. And in reading this story immediately, I think, makes us rethink or should make us rethink again, how, how we engage uh, in the spiritual battle. Um, You know, both in how we wage it ourselves and uh, with the things that we struggle with, but also when we see the things that we do within the world or see others struggling with that sin. And, you know, parents, I often hear from parents and uh, who are worried about their children who have left the faith uh, altogether or, um, you know, spouses who have a similar experience where their their husband or their wife doesn't live out the faith or, con- you know, contrary to it, uh, live something opposite. And there can be this deep frustration, woundedness, loss of hope uh, in the midst of it and often the question how does one respond to this and I I think what is often looked for is a particular action to be taken or thing to be said to the other Uh, and uh, rather than what should be the nature and the depth of our conversion and uh, living out the life of faith how deeply have we allowed Christ to live within us? How deeply have we been transformed by his grace? Uh, and do we believe that that reality can touch even that which is the, the deepest and darkest wounds within ourselves and with, within others and within our our families? And it's hard because I think our we often will have this initial reaction, the desire to protect ourselves, or that we do bear the wounds, the trauma of abuse over the course of years. Uh, Not speaking of physical abuse here, in the sense, you know, I think there are times where certainly a person has to remove themselves from that, but there can be, you know, abuse that we've experienced in the past as well. And there can be a kind of hopelessness that overcomes us. And again, I think these, Stories from the Fathers show us the, the power of God's grace acting within us and what that grace is capable of doing. And I, you know, I think where you know, there is a movement away from belief in the presence of the Lord in the Eucharist. Or a movement away from the practice of the faith or confession, I think it it sort of expresses our our loss of of, of faith in the power of that grace to transform our lives and the life, lives of others, and uh, and most often I think that can be true in our day to day life too, and in, in the sense of our the way we pray or don't pray, uh, or becomes episodic or non-existent uh that it doesn't express what we we see here that you know god is capable of acting even in the most desperate uh of of scenes in our life i didn't mean to say scenes there i was thinking of a scene in a movie so sorry about that uh that came to mind that it sort of expresses this and uh we've talked about before the movie ostrov or the island it's this uh, russian movie uh about uh, a monk uh, living in this monastery. and he's sort of a, a holy fool and he his job is to stoke the furnaces to keep the you know the rest of the monks warm and he sort of lives he's dirty all the time and people are coming and visiting him and talking to him and there's one monk who sort of despises him for it because God is also blessing him you know that this through him miracles were taking taking place and uh but one of the ones in the movie is that uh towards the end was uh a ship is seen out in the sea approaching the monastery and the beginning of the movie shows this man as this monk as a young man and He's on a ship with a captain that is uh, carrying coal and the Nazis board and the two guys hide and they find him. And then he betrays the captain, reveals where he's hiding and they they force him to shoot the captain and he thinks that he's killed him. And so he embraces this life of penance on this island as, as, as a monk and he's spending his whole life shoveling the coal from the shipwreck because they blew up the boat he's shoveling the coal then to heat the monastery but the final scene is this uh, military officer comes whose daughter is possessed and uh and this whole time the monk thinks you know that He's, he had killed this captain, but in the end, it's this captain who brings his daughter who's possessed, and he heals her. Uh, and But again, you know, I think it is what made him capable of healing others was this deep humility and this constant kind of disparagement or rebuke of self that, you know, it wasn't... It, how do I put this when we think of repentance we often don't think of seeking to uproot in a in a deep way uh, what led us to that sin in the first place and embracing a penitential life especially if the sins were very deep and serious and here, you know, he shoots, thinks that he's murdered this man, and actually did shoot him, but it just didn't kill him. But he embraces this life of a life of penance, and you know, to us again, this seems very stark. But uh, we see the again, whether it's in this movie or in these stories, the the power. Of that, because of how it directs a person toward toward God, that he gives him his life over to God uh, as a penitential life, acknowledging, you know, that he took the life of another, and uh, and so it's clear for him, you know, nobody has to tell him what his vocation is or give him any direction, you know, that he knows, okay. This is how I'm to live my life. It wasn't a mystery, to him, And I think we often, again, turn our lives into Christians, into how we are to use our talents or make use of all these things to make the gospel known, rather than simply living the life and living it again, not in an abstract way, but at the deepest regions uh, of our heart. The acknowledgement of our poverty, our need for a savior and his forgiveness. And again, you know th- this story, you know these anchorites who've l- led this life of deep repentance, and you know out of modesty, we are told will, will not presume to to be able to heal this young woman. Uh, but they have been so formed by uh, their life of repentance and by the spirit of humility uh, that they're simply enacting the gospel brings about the healing. God, there, there's no impediment into the, in them that prevents God from acting through them or using them as an instrument. And so there's no exaltation of the self in these stories. It's an interesting thing that we see God acting through all these individuals in very powerful ways, but not, you know, again, because they've done anything extraordinary. If we go all the way back, we're at the end of the volume now, but if we go all the way back to the beginning, all those beautiful stories about repentance Uh, drawing a person back into the life of God without them there having done anything, you know, that the power of turning towards him, of of acknowledging that truth brings them back into that fullness of life. And some of them, you know, die on the way back to the monastery or before they can, you know, make any specific changes in their life. The one change that was necessary that repentance though, was there, and that's what was salvific. I think we like to complicate our our faith, because in some ways uh, that prevents us from living it with such a simple clarity. We like to talk about it a lot, but not so much to live it. So uh, just one final one, and then we'll call it an evening. However, said, I have toiled more than my son Zacharias, and yet I have not attained to the measure of his virtue on account of his humility and silence. So, you know, as a final little statement, again, being reminded, it's not the toil that is an end in itself. That it was the movement of this uh, you know spiritual son uh, uh towards humility and silence uh that you know that he does not put himself forward but only seeks to to live for god that is what is transformative and uh so we, we the fathers do the work for us they keep us in a kind of balance here that uh You know, Augustine says, you know, God can create us without our cooperation, but he cannot save us without our cooperation, without our assent, our yes to him. And so there is this kind of synergy in the spiritual life. And the synergy is our response to that love. And our response to that love and that mercy is repentance and humility. Any final comments about anything that we read or talked about here this evening? So we'll have a lot to to look at in the the weeks and I'd say even months to come uh, with this one hypothesis. Uh, Again, because the virtue is so important, they're they're really going to unpack it for us. Okay, so we'll stop there for the evening. Thank you all and have a wonderful week close with you, our father in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation deliver us from evil amen the lord be with you may almighty god bless you the father the son the holy spirit amen go in peace